So my wife and I, we watched a movie the other night. It was on TV. We didn't go to a theater. Uh, Social Dilemma, I think was the name of it. It's a crazy film. It was a documentary. Diane's like, oh, you got to see this because social media is ruining it. But that's not what Diane said, but that's what the movie's <laughs> telling us, that social media is It's kind of this idea that assumptions happen in bubbles. Like we talked about this several weeks back, uh, Christian assumptions, right, in, in week one. Uh, what happens when we make assumptions? Um, we, we make the assumptions because we're, we're in a bubble, right? Either we've placed ourselves in a bubble, there's outside information available, but we haven't accessed it. So we make these decisions assuming certain things that we haven't checked, and we usually end up looking silly when we make these assumptions. And really, uh, in this movie, Social Dilemma, what they're saying is if you were to watch a single news feed, whatever news station you like watching on TV, you will eventually develop their opinion, right? And what the point of the movie was was social media, Facebook, Instagram, you know, TikTok, I mean, all the, all the, all the platforms, is that when you start clicking... There are, there are machines that read your clicks and they add them all up and they read you so that when the next time you get on your Facebook or when you get on your account, they're going to feed you what they believe you want to see. Now, now, that's not so bad, except that after a little while, you place yourself in a bubble. You're only hearing one perspective. And pretty soon, you truly believe that everybody else who has a different perspective is actually stupid. But they're not. They're not. They've been watching the other news station, and they think you're stupid, right? So both people have, have been so in their bubbles that they simply can't even recognize any validity in anybody else's statement. And I feel like sometimes the Bible is kind of in that same boat, right? Um, we, we make all these assumptions, um, and, and it, it somehow gets separated from the world into which it was supposed to speak, Right? We separate it from the world. Oh, we don't, we don't want it to get solely. We don't want any of these theories to touch it. And pretty soon, it doesn't speak to the world anymore. And people decide, why go to church? Why read the book? Because nobody, just like Dougie said, nobody's helping me answer the questions that I'm asking. They're just saying, just, just believe, just believe and be quiet. It's like, no, <laughs> no, um, not at all. John Wesley recognized this. And we're going to look at John Wesley today. Um, but a certain quote of his has led a lot of people to believe the exact opposite of John Wesley, right? He, he said this, um, and this is in his preface to his first volume of his sermons, got published. He says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. Let me be a man of one book. Now, you read that phrase and you think, the guy never read a history book. He never read his math book. He never studied in school. He never did anything but read his Bible. All truth comes from the Bible, but there, nothing can be further from the truth than John, than John Wesley, the way he read um, his Bible. Um, it's, this isn't the case. John Wesley didn't read just one book. In fact, uh, Wesley responded, uh, some of his followers and his students got a hold of this quote and they would, they would like um, brag, right? Um, I read only the Bible. Well, John Wesley got a hold of these people and this is what he said to them. This is rank enthusiasm. If you need no other book but the Bible, then you're above St. Paul because in one of the letters, Paul's saying, hey, bring me the books I need to study and, you know, so forth. So, so Paul used other books. So John Wesley's like, hey, right? If you think that you only can read the Bible to arrive at truth, then, then you think you're better than Paul the apostle. 
John Wesley believed that in order to help his people make sense of the world, he had to understand that world. And so as you read about John Wesley, he spent a lot of time reading other books besides the Bible. He was a huge into science and nature. Like, ang- that was like that's an Anglican thing in the Church of England, very much seeing God in nature, right? So he's, he's part of that tradition. Um, more to the point, though, the Bible has to make sense in the world in which his congregation lived and in which he ministered it with that congregation. Um, and if it didn't make sense in the context of his congregation's life, then he felt that probably more than likely y'all had a wrong interpretation or you were misusing scripture, right? If it doesn't make sense where the rubber hits the road, then look at it again, look at it again, look at it again. So our worship, our worship service this morning is gonna kind of feel more like a memorial service, right? You do, a, you do a memorial service and what you do is you talk about somebody and you talk about their life and how they lived your life. Um, if you know me, uh, I've said this many times, I, I'm gonna say this very carefully. Um, I really, really prefer funerals to doing weddings as an officiant, right? Weddings, I know for a fact, ain't nobody in the world, nobody's looking at me or listening to me. Nobody. They're not even thinking scriptural, <laughs> spiritual things. But in a funeral or a memorial service, everybody, right? They're, they're looking at this life and they're kind of comparing their life to, to the life being memorialized. And like, how do I stack up? Right? Maybe I need to... You know, what are they going to say about me at the end? So this morning what I want to do is I kind of, I'm not going to memorialize John Wesley, but I want to examine John Wesley's life and how he interacted with God's word. And again, I believe that it will really show us a clear way forward in this time, particularly when there's so many conflicting sources and claims of truth, right? To the point where the Bible, people are looking at it and it, it keeps dropping one notch after another and these other sources of authority Right, kind of get placed up. And I think it's, it's our fault. It's the church's fault. We have not made the Bible relevant in people's lives. We've stood on a, a conceptual truth and, and, and never really applied that truth to, to real life, to, to reality. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, so we're going to look at, first of all, the, the Bible that John Wesley read. Um, Going to talk about just very, very shortly translations and the Apocrypha. Um, you understand that the Bible that John Wesley read was the King James Version of his day. And what you might not recognize and might not realize that the first versions of the King James Version included 16 books that we no longer have. Right? It was called the Apocrypha. There was a lot of books written in, the, in between uh, the last book of the Old Testament and, and, the, and the letters in the Gospels of the New Testament. It was very... It was apocalyptic a lot, very often, very crazy language, a lot of pretty bizarre stuff. And the early church, they, 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 they read the Apocrypha, these 16 books, but they didn't, they, they didn't put it in the same category as the other 66 books, right? It, it, you could read these books for examples and, and of Christian virtue and so forth, but for doctrine and theology, not so much. And so the book that John Wesley, the Bible that John Wesley started with as a pastor included the Apocrypha, which we might find very strange. Now, eventually through his lifetime, he he rejected those 16 books. He still used them, but you're never going to find any of them in any of his writings or any of his sermons. And the weird thing is, here's the weird thing. um, He was very, very selective uh, uh, in in what he preached from. That's what made him such a distinctive theologian, right? Bible scholars, they look at theologians and they decide, has this guy got anything distinctive to say by 
the, 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 the bag of scriptures that, that it, they constantly pull out, right? Every time John Wesley preached, he would pull out those verses, right? So he became known, and we're going to look at those couple verses. It's only a couple places, right? He just lived on these couple passages um, and, and one particular book of the Bible. Um, but as we talk about the book that, that he read, um, it was radically different than ours, completely different. Um, and again, he, didn't, he never preached from Esther, Song of Songs, Obadiah, Nahum, uh, Zephaniah, Philemon, or Third John, right? John Wesley was not about you knowing all about the Bible. His whole goal was that you would be able to use the Bible to live a life of love in which you love God and you loved your neighbor. That was his whole goal. He didn't care what you believed about this, that, or the other thing. As long as your reading of Scripture compelled you to love people, then you were reading it correctly in, in John Wesley's opinion. Again, he didn't even use just the King James Version. He used uh, Miles Cloverdale's, a Cloverdale translation. Uh, we're going to take a look at that in a couple weeks. Um, it was part of, it was used for the Book of Common Prayer, which if you're an Anglican, a Church of England, uh, that, was your, that was your rules of how do you run a service. I mean, every service, uh, evening service, birthdays, celebrations, I mean, the Book of Common Prayer told you exactly how to do the entire service. There was no preaching like I'm doing up here. It was, you did read certain scriptures at certain points. Um, and so he would use all different translations depending on what he was trying to do. So just kind of a, a point for all of us, we, we like our one translation, uh, but Wesley said, you know what, stick with the most recent, but keep looking back at the older ones, take a look at the newer ones. Okay, that's not me. <laughs> just wanted to make sure. Another qualification about John Wesley and the way he read his Bible, um, he read it in the original language. He loved original language translations. Right? He owned a, a Hebrew and Greek texts, and he valued them above all of the modern translations of his day. He would consistently go to the original Greek and Hebrew um, texts. In fact, to assure himself that it was hearing only the absolute clearest voice and the best interpretation possible, um, he actually used, and this is pretty crazy because at this point in today's date, I believe there's about 25,000 variants of the New Testament because scribes were copying it all over the place, right? I mean, all over Europe, they were, you know, copying it, and, and some of them survived, some of them don't. So we got, a, to this day, about 25,000. I don't know how many were in his, hit that next uh, slide there. Um, these, these Greek manuscripts, John Mills had a volume, a two-volume set, and it had all of the Greek variants up to that day, and, and that's what he would use. Right? So, again, as we get all caught up in, oh, I'm only King James or I'm only, you know, NIV or only NIV 2011, <sighs> John Wesley just suggests, and I would suggest to you all to use some different translations. Um, he was so keen to be certain that his followers had the latest biblical research that he didn't wait for the crown to Bruce another version, he basically wrote his own version of the Bible, like 12,000 alterations to his King James. The, all, most of them were minor. I mean, he didn't change any theology or, or doctrine or anything like that, but, but he, he just knew he had the latest at his fingertips, and, and he used the latest. Um, and finally, finally, um, he used all available scholarly tools, grammar books, lexicons, you name it. And he used commentaries. And he would use commentaries of Reformed, like Calvin's, 
commentary, he, uh, Luther's commentaries, he would use Armenian commentar commentaries, he would use Catholic commentaries, he would use Eastern Orthodox commentaries, he, uh, he used the whole breadth of them. He didn't just read his, you know, Anglican commentaries. He, he wanted a wide, wide, he, he, he kind of like Doug, like he, he knew he had to cast a super wide net in order to really arrive at truth, right? The Bible has a lot of truth, but it needs to be interpreted and according to John Wesley, you can best interpret the Bible by the life and the world around the Bible. So we're going to kind of dig into that just a little bit. Um, and again, important to remember, 200 years of scholarship since John Wesley wrote, we don't always now agree with everything that he interpreted. And that's important to understand because he did the exact same thing. He didn't always believe what was handed on, handed up to him. He examined it, re-examined it in the light of his day, in the light of the knowledge of his day, and he would just straight out reinterpret Scripture. So again, we, as good Wesleyans, we have that leeway. We have that permission um, to do these things. Um, the key is that John Wesley welcomed and used every means at his disposal to arrive at a really a practical functional theology, right? Wesley knew because he studied so many of the translations and all the variant translations of the day, he knew that whatever he was holding in his hands all bound up nicely in leather was probably, well, it wasn't. It was most definitely somebody's translation. Somebody took the words on the page and said, this is what they mean. And, and that's what you all have in your hands. You have somebody's translation, and I know it, you think, oh, no, 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 I have the word of God in my hand, right? No, you don't. You have something that's been translated. And that does not mean that the truth is no longer there. It just means that it's been translated in ways that generation after generation after generation can still make sense of it and it can still give life. Nothing changed, per se, just the way it was explained and presented so that it still gives life. Does that make sense? We're not drawing, we're not taking away anything vital. We're adding life, always as the years go by. So again, Wesley, incredibly wide net in his attempt to make the Bible make sense, right, to both him and, and to people. And this idea included reading in conference. As you read John Wesley's writings, he always used this word in conference. And what that really means is just alongside, right? So he wouldn't, he really did not, even though his mother, I think, kind of did this, he wasn't that keen on reading the Bible alone. He constantly told his followers, read it alongside somebody else. Don't read it by yourself. Read it as often as you can. Yes, you're going to have to read it by yourself. In fact, what do you say? You can't, you can't read too much of the Bible and you can't read the Bible too much. Right? So he was all about reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it, and you don't always have somebody at home to read it with. But when you're discussing it, studying it, it's like, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. You're going to arrive at some weird things, right? Because you're a limited person. Read it in conference with other believers. He read it with believers and unbelievers alike, right? Unbelievers, because he, he wanted to say, does, does this make sense, right? If I, I know Christ, I'm in a bubble, so when I read it, it makes perfect sense, but does the person on the street, when they read those same words, what are they reading? How are they hearing it, right? Because they're going to be interpreting it. So he would read it alongside unbelievers, but he would also read it alongside believers for two reasons. This is very, very important. Not only for scholarly advice, Right? We see in his letters that he would write to people. He would ask them advice, right? What, is, what do you think this passage means? Because I'm having trouble with it. Here's where I'm going with it. But what do you think? He would, right? But more than that, he would seek, I guess the best way to say it, um, spiritual advice, 
right? He would seek out those people that he knew that were saints. And he would say, well, how do you read this? Because I look at your life, and by looking at your life, I can see that somehow you interpreted this correctly because you're absolutely chock full of love. And, and, and that tells me you, you had to have interpreted it correctly. That, that's the lens by which he read Scripture. Does it lead people to loving God and loving their neighbor? And so he would, he, would, he would seek out mature believers to help him make sense, connect the words on the page with his experience in life. Does that make sense? Right, the words on the page, how, how did they reflect in this other person's life, and how should these words be reflected in my life? Here, these were the questions that John Wesley would ask his mature friends. He had a, he had a, a, a saying that, got, that gets misquoted all the time, and I'm going to misquote it deliberately right now in, in several different ways. You can't have personal piety or holiness without social piety or holiness, and you can't have social piety or holiness without the other, <laughs> whichever one. You can't have one without the other, and that's really not what he said, right? We, we kind of took that, but what he really actually said was this. Um, uh, where do I have the words? Um, no holiness, but social holiness. And what he meant is that our personal convictions should be lived out. They should be evident. We should be displaying fruits of the Spirit, right? Your personal beliefs, if they're not evident in your social interactions, James, the writer, would probably agree with Wesley, your faith is dead. Your faith doesn't mean a whole lot. You might believe some certain things, but it's certainly not making you love God or love your neighbor anymore at all, right? So th this was a big deal for, for John Wesley. He also read in conference with the book of nature, and this was like a phrase from the 1700s, it's science, and all that science is, right? John Wesley, he loved, loved science, right? Um, but here's the key. Here's the absolute key when he, again, looked at the world and, and saw God, right, in, in the, the, the majesty of the world and the incredible workings of the world and the, the design of the, I mean, all this. He, he just saw God's fingerprints all over everything. Um, and here's what he would say. Whenever Wesley was confronted with an apparent conflict between science of his day, which they were discovering and writing about, and he would look at that and he would compare it to Scripture and he'd go, whoa, 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 conflict. And what was amazing about John Wesley, and we should take a cue from him, is he never got into a debate about which was more authoritative. He literally would just go back to the drawing board, go back to square one, and he would look at both facts, the science and the theology, and he would, he would attempt to reinterpret both to, and this is what he says, he had a, a phrase, um, to do justice. Let's see. He writes, seeking an understanding that did justice to both. Right? He, he wanted to do justice to the science, what the scientists were figuring out, but he wanted to do justice to the Holy Spirit and the writing of Holy Scripture also. Right? He held these, these two ideas kind of in, a, in a, an incredible balance, um, the book of nature. So, and, and again, we can do this. If it, we can act like John Wesley. It's okay to look at this and, and know it's the, the, the authoritative word of God, but we can also look out into the world and come to maybe some different interpretations of the book. The easiest way to explain how John Wesley read the Bible is by way of, might have, maybe some of you have heard of this, the Wesley quadrilateral. Now, I'm not terribly certain he came up with this term, but scholars came up with this term for him. And basically what it means is he would take these four ideas, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, um, and, and he'd put scripture at the top, 
right? But he would use tradition, reason, and experience to help him understand the scripture, to help him explain the scripture, to help him properly and correctly interpret the scripture, and then to properly apply the scripture into the people's lives of the congregations that he was, he was leading. That, that, that was everything to him, right? So scripture alone, for John Wesley, and I think we can take a cue from him, all the truth in the world is not only in the Bible. There is truth in our world outside of the Bible, and John Wesley simply confirmed this, and he was okay with it. He said, you know what? There's other truths in our world that help us understand God's word, right? That put feet, that put skin and bones on God's word. So this is the way he used tradition, reason, and experience. I'm just going to kind of walk through them um, fairly quickly um, right now. Just Again, this, this is just to help you as you read your scripture, because I, I know a lot of times, well, I'm allowed, am I allowed to do that? As I read this, am I allowed? John Wesley would almost always say, sure, go for it. See what God has to say by trying out something different. Again, the Anglican church rested on three pillars, scripture, tradition, and reason. And then John Wesley added experience. And we're going to find out in just a little bit. But again, I want to point out, scripture held top spot, right? He says this. I allow no other rule, whether of faith or practice, than the Holy Scripture. It should be the constant rule of all our tempers, our character, right, character that we develop, all of our words and all of our actions. But again, as we're going to find out, John Wesley leaned heavily on these other three areas as means, as ways of helping him understand Scripture, to better interpret it, to better explain it and, and apply it. So let's start with Wesley's view of Scripture, the first of his four legs, Scripture. Um, Wesley never agreed with Augustine. Calvin bought into Augustine entirely. Both Calvin, John Calvin, and Augustine um, had it that the, that the writers of Scripture, somehow God gave them the ability to explain the realities of the world and the truths of God using the language of their day so that it, it should still make sense today. I, I'm not sure if I explained that correctly. Um, Calvin and Augustine just believed that, that God... You know, whatever they said about creation, whatever they said about the earth in any way, shape, or form, um, God gave them that scientific ability, even the science of today, to make that statement. And, and Wesley just kind of backed away from that. He didn't believe that, right? He kind of, he, he believed that God somehow gave the writers the understanding of God that was understandable and expressible in, within their limited experience in a way that would still make sense today. So that when you read with a, a belief of Scripture that Augustine and John Calvin read, when you read that Bible today, according to them, all scientific and historical facts are absolutely correct. And that's good and fine. I got no problem with that. John Wesley just disagreed, right? He said the Word of God, the truths of God um, were explained in pretty primitive science. That was his opinion. Pretty primitive science, and yet it still makes sense today. That, that, that's the amazing thing um, about Scripture. Again, aside from his assistance in reading the Bible completely and regularly, like, you know, every day, he, he was very much against reading in snippets. He had to read a whole letter. I mean, that was his rule. He had to read a whole book. Do not read a partial. That was, that was John, you got to read the whole book. You got to read the whole Bible, right, in order to get the whole picture. That, that, aside from that, he insisted that without the Spirit's continued inspiration, 
our ability to perceive the truth is incredibly limited. Again, this is because Wesley's definition of what God breathed means is so much wider than the current discussion about inerrancy and infallibility. Here, here's John Wesley's description of definition of the inspiration of God. It's the influence of the Holy Spirit that enables persons to love and serve God. Now, you notice that that is a very, very wide definition. Now, it definitely includes a very narrow slice of the Bible, but for John Wesley, the inspiration of God works through other books, works through other people, works through other cultures, works through other, all sorts of other stuff, because God's inspiration, he's in the business of inspiring us and guiding us into all truth all the time through every means available. I get the impression, right? So for this intensely practical and functional reason, right, Wesley never spent a whole lot of time on inerrancy or infallibility arguments, right? He valued them if they led to a stronger faith, but he never allowed them to be the foundation of somebody's faith. He said, these, these are non-essentials. Don't, don't let these be the foundation um, right? For Wesleyans, Holy Scripture has a very specific set of purposes, right? a very, very specific set of functions. Right? For John Wesley, it wasn't a science book. It wasn't a history. It wasn't, it wasn't any of these books. He had three reasons for reading the Scripture. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Number one was the rule of Christian faith. Right? What we believe and what we don't believe. That's the number one reason John Wesley wrote his Bible. It all starts here. Rules of practice, rules of hope that we're going to get to in a moment, those all come from this first rule of Christian faith. If there was ever a passage that Wesley loved more than others, it would be this one. We read it earlier, Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all that he has made. He kind of hung his hat on this one. Along with 1 John, if you go read 1 John, maybe this afternoon, God is love, 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 God is love. And if you don't have love in you, you don't have God in you, right? Just, it just goes on and on and on. For, this was Wesley. This was, if you read this passage and you arrived at any kind of conclusion other than God is good and he has compassion on all that he has made, then he, in Wesley's opinion, you were misreading the Bible, right? He read everything through this passage and First John, right? It had to make sense according to these, these things right, right here. Um, again, if one passage led you to doubt this, the all-encompassing love of God, you're, all, you're on the wrong trail. Right? Start over, according to John Wesley. Um, reading this passage in, in 1 John is what led him to reject so much of what Calvin was preaching, predestination, total depravity. He read his scripture, John Wesley read his scripture and said, no, no, that, that, that's not what I read in scripture, right? We can actually be cleansed and we can be thoroughly sanctified through and through. He's like, well, it doesn't, the experience that I'm witnessing doesn't make sense according to what John Calvin is saying. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. Final word about the rule of faith. For the Anglican church, for the Catholic church, the rule of faith meant something. It meant that scripture and the church... Right? If you had a question about what to believe, these two fairly equal sources of authority was called the rule of faith. Right? The very, very early church fathers, as you read and, and read your Bible, if you had any problems, apply the rule of faith. The rule of faith. What has, what has Scripture previously said about it? What does the church say about it? Right? So the Protestant Reformation comes into full swing, and they decide, no, 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 not the, not, not the church, just Scripture. And this was Zwingli. If you read your Protestant people, this is a guy right after Martin Luther. Um, 
He, he comes along and says, you know what? It's not the church that interprets Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, and that was a huge thing. We, 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 we embrace that, right? We embrace this. Um, but, but he comes along and says, uh, no, not the church. Um, it's only Scripture. And so they come up with this phrase, right? We've heard this, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, right? And, and we read that and we assume only the Bible. Read only the Bible. Don't read anything else, right? And a lot of people read it this way, but that's really not what he was driving at. Here's what it really meant. The Reformation call for Scripture only was addressing the ecclesiastical authorities, right? The church authorities who were trying to interpret stuff. Um, it had nothing to say about secular sources of information. Again, we read that Scripture only. We think, oh, we're not allowed to read any other book, right? No other book contains truth. That's not what this phrase is saying. It's just saying that the church doesn't have authority over Scripture to tell us what is true and not true. It has nothing to say about secular sources of information. And again, if we're good Wesleyans, we got to buy into that. we got to be okay with that because Wesley drew, again, a wide net for his sources of information, not just the Bible. Uh, he wrote Scripture chiefly for two other additional reasons. So the rule of faith, you know, what he believed, what he didn't believe, but also the Christian practice. Right? How should we then live based on what we believe? Right? This is where John Wesley's practical theology sets him apart from all the other theologians. Right? Um, the second role of Scripture was really, really important to him. Um, it's called the third use of the law. And this is where he kind of agreed with John Calvin. The first use of the law is that it, it, it shapes us. Excuse me, it, it prepares us to receive the gospel. It points out our sin, it convicts us of sin, and we recognize the fact that we need a savior, right? The second use of scripture is really what the government uses it for, right? They use a whole bunch of moral laws to keep people who don't believe in Jesus and don't have love in their heart from doing mean things to each other, right? All of our laws in our country is basically Judeo-Christian ethics, right? So but a second use of the law, according to Wesley, is that, well, it keeps all those sinners out there in line, right? We're in line because we love Jesus. <laughs> but they don't have Jesus in their heart. So this third use of the law for, for, uh, for Wesley and Calvin, um, it, it shapes us, right? When we read scripture, we read of examples of, of Christian virtue. And, and again, we think, ooh, how's my life compared to that? Ooh, maybe not so much. So for Wesley, he would read the law but it didn't convict you. He didn't allow it to judge you, but he did allow it to guide us. He said, read, read, read the law, and it tells us what's right and wrong, and, it, and it, it guides us into holy living. It gives us Christian character, right? And a third reason Wesley, Wesley read Scripture was for Christian hope, right? Scripture gave John Wesley hope. It sustained him, right? It constantly challenged him. Again, late in his life, he turned to Psalm 145, verse 9, again and again and again. And in fact, late in his life, this is crazy, Early in his ministry, he believed um, that we would all, when Christ returned, we would all be whisked away and this whole earth would be annihilated and we'd all be somewhere else on, a, on the distant shores, right, of heaven. But in the late 1700s, he was reading a lot of science. And late in his life, he arrived at this, the conclusion that, well, actually, he, heaven is here, he believed, Right? God is going to redeem, according to Psalm 145.9, he's going to redeem everything. And it wasn't even arrived at the point where he's going to redeem animals. And all those animals that were sacrificed, they're all going to be redeemed. Everything is going to be redeemed. This whole place that we're living at is good. It just got wrecked a little bit. 
but it's going to get fixed. Now, aside from studying the text itself, he relied on these three other broad lenses. I'm going to go through them very quickly. First one is tradition. And again, he, he never devalued, let me say this right, he valued the Bible, but he never devalued other books. Tradition, again, it wasn't an appeal to do things the way that we'd always done them. He knew that Christian history was horrible. <laughs> he knew this. Um, but for him, tradition meant that first 300 years. Those early writers and those early apostles, creeds. I mean, we, we sang one a little bit early. I believe, I believe, I believe. Right? He used those creeds, and he used the writings of the early church, and he would say, okay, you're interpreting the Bible this way, but these guys are talking something radically different. See, he believed that first 300 years was like the purest form of Christianity that's ever been, right? So he, that, that's where he drew inspiration from as he tried to understand Scripture. Whatever those early writers would say, he would kind of lean into them and their opinion. And this, there were several things this kept people from doing. Um, number one, he felt that these early writers and these early creedal statements, uh, they keep people from faddish beliefs, whatever's current, right? If you keep going back to the original, you can't get too far off on fads, so he's like, okay, y'all are having this really weird little thing, transcendentalism and spiritually, all this, right? Let's read the church fathers. Let, let's kind of get back to basics, right? That, that Wesley was all about getting back to, to basics. Um, but he also provided holy living and faithful living examples, right, to his congregations, these early church fathers. Um, a second lens that he read scripture through was reason. Next to scripture, he applied, he appealed to reason more often than anything else. In fact, he appealed to Scripture and reason together more often than he appealed to Scripture alone, right? So we've got to understand just a little bit about how he saw reason. Um, he writes this late in his ministry. Reason was incredibly important to him. Again, he's, he, was a, he was a part of the age of reason, right? He was a, he was a child of the Enlightenment era, so no duh. Um, see, he says this, it's a fundamental principle with us Methodists that to renounce reason is to renounce religion, that religion and reason go hand in hand and that all irrational religion is false religion. Like, right? Now, again, with tradition, as with tradition, we kind of got to understand what Wesley meant, what he didn't mean. He wasn't a rationalist, right? He didn't believe that reason alone provides all the information we need. We don't need God. We don't need inspiration. We just need our brains and our five senses and we can arrive at all knowledge. It's like, no, 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 no. Reason is a gift from God in which we take in with our five senses the reality of the world and then God gives us this reason in order to interpret what our senses are bringing in, right? Reason had that, that ability to interpret what we're seeing and it was a God-given ability, but he also knew the limit to reason. Reason alone can't produce faith. Reason alone can't cause us to know God. Reason alone can't help us know what God is alike, right? Or produce the fruit of the Spirit. Rebecca Miles writes this, reason alone can accomplish very little, but reason in good company can do many things. And Wesley's final lens to which he in his opinion, he could best understand and explain and interpret and apply Scripture, and that was with experience. This was the last leg. His pastoral concerns shaped his theology, right? For Wesley, Scripture had to, had to be able to shape the lives of people to look more and more like Christ, or they weren't reading it correctly, or they weren't interpreting it correctly, or they were just ignoring it. <laughs> that could be also... Um, 
He just felt that reading Scripture was a very, very, very limiting experience if it didn't involve the lives of the people around him and made sense to the lives of the people around him. So by adding experience to the traditional Anglican triad, um, Wesley sought to add vitality to religion, right? He had, he had hung out with the Moravians, the, the pietists of, of southern Germany, and he loved their, their quietism. But that along with the Anglican church, there were a couple things that bothered John Wesley about these two. These were his two big overriding concerns. His church, the Anglican church, had become kind of cold and dead. It was purely rational. You agree with these seven statements? You're a a Christian. Go out and have a great day. And that was it. And the the pietists and the Moravians, they felt that, like, you know, um, God is so incredible and powerful that we just need to shut up and sit still and let him do his thing. On both counts, John Wesley says, no, no, we can't sit and do nothing. That's not what Scripture is leading me to. Right? We've got to have this inner heart experience. So the Anglicans, right, in his opinion, they had a dead faith, religion without power. And the Moravians, they had that inner heart experience, but then they didn't do anything. And Wesley's like, well, you've got to do something with that. If your heart has really changed... If your heart is really filled with the Holy Spirit and overflowing with love, you can't help but love somebody. I think God wants you to do that. Experience meant two things to Wesley. The testimony of the Spirit in our soul, that was very important to him. He wanted to feel that experience. He didn't want it to just know something. He wanted to feel the presence of God in his life. But he also used experience as kind of proof or witness of the faith of others. And this was kind of crazy. He would say, okay, so you're reading this, that you're interpreting Scripture in this manner, then you should therefore be doing this. But I'm not seeing it. So he would discount it. And here's the crazy part for us Nazarenes. He would see in people's lives the fact that there was no total depravity. He would look in people's lives and he'd be like, you know what? I could almost swear that that person has been cleansed entirely by the Spirit. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm looking and I'm just going, Wow. And then he would go to Scripture. Based on that experience, he would then, he went back to Scripture, and he's like, lo and behold, the blood of Christ does sanctify us through and through. But it was experience that led him to this idea of being entirely sanctified. It was always there in the Bible. But he kind of didn't come up with it, but he, but he saw it in people's lives, and then he was able to go to Scripture and, and find evidence of it. Conclusion here, Wesley chose reading practices for their usefulness toward his purpose, always in light of the context in which he and his congregation lived and ministered. Homework for tonight. Luke 4, read the temptation of Jesus. If you want to watch live and in action somebody who grossly misinterprets Scripture, who does not use reason or tradition or experience as they read Scripture, read about the conversation between Satan and Jesus out in the wilderness. You're going to have somebody who embraces everything that Wesley embraced about interpreting Scripture, and you're going to have the Satan who does not have a clue, ill-informed, misinterpreted, using Scripture for his own purposes rather than the glory of God. And that'll just like, <laughs> last nail in the coffin right there. So as we prepare our hearts, we're going to receive communion this morning. I want you to just point something out very important about John Wesley. There were two main ways for Wesley to experience the truth of God. One was the written word through which he read through experience and reason and tradition. 
And he called it these, these, these avenues, these ways that God gives us truth about himself, he called means of grace. So reading scripture is one key means of grace. But the other one was absolutely crucial for John Wesley. In fact, he had his, his followers do it every single morning. And that was communion. He said, when we participate in communion, we perceive more of the truth of God than probably even reading scripture. We, we just, if you want to interpret any scripture in the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation, whatever chapter and verse it ends in, and you have a question, <clears throat> how do I read this? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the perfect representation. So if you're wondering what God is like and you're reading in the Old Testament some weird, like, horrible thing that God did, read it in light of Jesus. Read it in light of Jesus. Father, thank you for revealing everything that we need to know. Everything that we need to know. Now, whether you gave more information than that, that that's up for question. But, but Father, you gave us all the, your, your word is sufficient. It's sufficient. Your word will lead us to salvation. And your living word made that possible. Father, never let us forget. In Jesus' name I pray.